welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm chatting with mammologist, ecologist, and conservation biologist Carl Vernis. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no worries. Now, Carl, you're on a hunt to find a lost marsupial. Yes, I am. What I'm is on... it? Where is it? <laughs> yeah, where, where is it? Um, where is it? Is it still alive? There's a couple of questions I can't answer yet. Actually, <laughs> um, it's a it's an animal called the desert rat kangaroo, mm-hmm. um, or Nulakunta is the traditional name for it uh, from the Sturtstony Desert region of South Australia. So. Uh, it's a small uh, rat kangaroo, which is, a, which is an unfortunate name, really. I don't like the name rat kangaroo. Um, uh, people immediately think of, of rats. Yeah, um, it's, it's, more, a, it's more kangaroo than It's more than kangaroo rat. than rat, yeah. exactly. And um, uh, it's got a really interesting history um, of, uh, of being found, lost, found again, and, and then up until now, uh, lots of little observations of from people that suggest this thing's still out there. So mm. it was described in the 1840s from Sturtstony Desert region of South Australia. Or in fact, the, those early records, we don't know where they came from, but we think they came from somewhere there. Described in the 1840s, hailed as a new species mm. to science and then immediately lost. No one could find this thing again. Right. Um, 88 years later, Hedley Herbert Finlayson uh, got word from a station owner in, in the Sturtstony Desert in northern South Australia that um, there's this strange macropod that he thought fitted the bill. He went out there on horseback in the height of summer because he worked at the University of Adelaide mm-hmm. as a lecturer and could only get time off in the middle of summer. So it's like <laughs> 50 degrees sea out there and he's out on horseback and, uh, and rediscovered this, this animal wow. um, and collected a number of specimens and then, um, and then uh, hailed it as a rediscovery, published in Nature, <laughs> all over. The, if you go to Trove, it's all through the newspaper clippings and whatever, this fantastic d- discovery. And then the very next thing, of course, that happened is we can't find it again. So he, he found it in 1930, 31. He went back and collected it again in 35, and then it disappeared, and no one's seen it since. Um, well, I shouldn't say no one's seen it since. There's, there's a whole lot of records we've compiled that suggest... Uh, a small kangaroo that fits a description right through to 2011 um, okay. you know, from that 1935 collection right through to there, including one that was related to me directly. And that's how I started on this, this kind of journey. I, um, I, I wrote an article for The Conversation about kangaroos and threatened species. And I got a phone call from a guy in South Australia who said, oh, I've seen one of those. And he described it to me and where he'd seen it. And it fitted the description. So, um, so I thought, well, no point sitting here wondering if this animal's out there. I've been doing that for 15 years now, um, wondering whether, whether the species could still be there. So I thought, okay, time to go. And if you there. rediscover it, is the plan to, to follow the trend and try to publish this in nature? Oh, yeah, well, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you know... I mean, what makes these accounts different to people that say they see panthers in the Blue Mountains or they, they spotted a yowie? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, they're from people that have often lived in that landscape for a long time, mm-hmm. um, know the fauna reasonably well, and then see something unusual that doesn't fit anything that they've known before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of the, of the 40, 50 or so, maybe 60-odd records that... 
um, was published in a paper by um, Carr and Robinson in 97. That's where I'm getting a lot of my information from. Um, they kind of put it through a filter of what else it could be and got rid of everything that it might not be. Mm. Everything from hopping mice, which are you know this big, to a couple of centimetres high, yeah. through to um, bilbies that burrow in the ground and have a white tip on their tail and long mm. floppy ears. So um, there were some things that clearly it wasn't what you know it wasn't the desert rat kangaroo, but there were others that are compelling you know um betongs carry nesting material in the tail they they wrap mm-hmm. their um tail around around grass that they clip and then they go and build a nest with that yeah. you know someone saw an animal hop across their path with a with a nest full of a tail full of nesting material so mm-hmm. there's nothing else that that could be and if and if it is something else it's it's something else that doesn't doesn't exist in that country anymore <laughs> anyway so yeah. so whatever it is <laughs> would be interesting yeah um and then, you know, the first hand, well, the, the account that was given to me um, by this gentleman that called me from Adelaide, um, uh, everything, he just, everything he said about it um, just ticked all the boxes mm. that, that, it, that it should be the desert rat kangaroo. So. Yeah. But whether it's still out there, we don't know. Um, and we, you know, we're careful not to say we're off to refine this thing. It's just a matter <laughs> of going out there and doing the work and we'll find it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a, um, it's a, we, we don't really know. And, you know, people compare, like a, a, something like the thylacines is not a fair comparison because mm. thylacines have been hunted for, for decades and decades and mm. people claim to have seen them, but no one can produce any sort of evidence. Yeah. Um, but, and people put out camera traps and done all kinds of work for, for thylacines and not found them. But for this animal, no one's really done any of that work. No one's mm. gone off to look for it in, in the kind of way we are hoping to do. So, um, you know, that's, that's a start to try yeah. and find this animal. Yeah. I imagine this is pretty exciting. I mean, this is the closest you can get to being a cryptozoologist while still being a legitimate scientist. Well, yes. <laughs> and um, I was, you know, that I, I was, I don't, I don't want to wear the cryptozoology no. badge. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I was a little bit worried about, about that um especially you know putting it out there as a crowdfunding campaign saying to people here's what i want to do what do you reckon do you want to give me some money um that's a that's a a difficult thing to um to ask of people um and i was and and also putting it out there for your colleagues to kind of judge you and say you know is this a good spend of your time or or Mm. effort um but my colleagues have been really really supportive and everyone's really behind it and thinks it's a fantastic idea so that 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 is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we had uh, Jody Rowley on the podcast a little while ago on a similar venture up here in the Tablelands looking for the peppered tree prong. Yes, yes. And, and I don't know if they've had any, any luck with it, but yeah, it's a similar situation. We have actually quite half-decent information to suggest that it could still exist. That's right. And, you know, there's, it's not without precedent. There are a number of examples of um, macropods, particularly, but other species as well, mm-hmm. being looked for. Uh, but sorry, being lost and then um, and then found. So there's a, a thing called the Gilbert's Potteroo in Western Australia that mm-hmm. had been lost for nearly 120 years yeah. uh, in southwest Western Australia near the town of Albany, where there's lots of people, bushwalkers and and holiday makers and people living in that countryside. Um, and a PhD student went out trapping quokkas and. Mm-hmm got an unusual looking cocker in her trap and it turned out to be this <laughs> missing animal that hadn't been seen since uh, the 1800s so yeah. um it does happen and mm-hmm. um and you know the IACN says a species is declared extinct when a uh, sufficient amount of effort has been put into looking for it and it hasn't been found okay uh, for this for this animal that hasn't been done so that's what we want to do 
And yeah. so we have descriptions. Do we have specimens or pelts or anything? There are, yes. There's, um, there are Finlayson's collections. So mm-hmm. he, he was um, of that uh, old-fashioned um, ilk that you, if you see something, you shoot, shoot it. it. And yeah. <laughs> so, so he collected uh, a number of animals, um, you know, not enough to threaten the species or anything, but um, he, there's, there's a dozen or so animals in, mm. in the South Australian Museum and other museums around the country. Um, there are skull, uh, skulls that we've um, got high-resolution photographs of in all different angles so that if we found, say, f- f- you know, skeletal material, we, mm-hmm. we should be able to match it up. We've got two very good um, uh, taxonomists on the team. One is um, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Jackson from, um, from DPI, uh, who's, a, who's written mammal taxonomy textbooks. Another is Chris Helgen, who has described almost or well, over 100 species of mammals <laughs> And he's not even 40 yet. Um, so he's one of the world's, you know, preeminent taxonomists, mammal taxonomists. It's going to be really hard to do, find new mammals. Yeah, that's right. And he's found 100 of them. So uh, it still staggers me, actually. So, um, so we've got, you know, we've got a good team. And if we found, you know, just a fragment of a jaw, I was talking to one of these guys yesterday. They said it, we just, a tooth is all we'd need. Wow. Um, so, you know, if we found a, you know, a skull or a fragment of something, we, mm. we should be able to identify it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we hope to find the real thing, living, breathing. <laughs> if you find it, what does that mean? What next? Well, um, yeah, well, we almost haven't let, let ourselves go there. You're trying to get your hopes up. <laughs> but, um, um, well, what next would be, um, uh, would be a, a, a giant recovery program, mm. I would think. Um, if... If this animal's still out there, it's in it's in remnants of its former population, mm. and um, we would have to act very fast to to get a you know captive breeding program in place, um, yep. fenced enclosures. Um, you know, like I said, I haven't almost haven't let myself go there yet yeah. because first we've got to see if it's see if it's there. So yeah. what's the plan? How are we going to find this thing? Or Okay. Look yeah. For this thing. Um, find this right. Thing. <laughs> so we've got we've got twenty or so reliable. Well, w- the best records we can we can get. Uh, that includes Finlayson's collection sites that mm-hmm. he went to. So we know exactly you know places where the animal has been. Um, and then there's other sites that are you know tantalizingly wonderful records that we think um, people have seen this animal. Yeah. So the the plan is to go to all of these sites um, and do you know, the, the, the basic vegetation landform surveys. Mm. Uh, and from that, we'll build a distribution and habitat model for the species. So if nothing else, we come away with um, the first ever predictive model of where this animal had occurred or does occur. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what were the specific habitat affiliations? So even those basic things haven't been sorted out. So that's, that's sort of really tangible, concrete science that we'll do and get a result from um but at each of those sites particularly the ones we think are the most promising we'll um we'll set up motion activated camera traps uh and we'll leave them there for several months and then return um in you know four to five months time Mm. collect them up and and then it's like um all your christmases at once you the anticipation (laughs) of what might be on each camera (laughs) you're already picturing these camera trap images in your head aren't you (laughs) um and um you know, we don't. We, what what could be on those cameras? We don't know. Maybe maybe it's all cats and foxes, and mm. there's our answer for us. You know. Yeah. Um, but there's other. There's even other candidate species out there that could be range extensions or species that haven't been seen for a while either. So mm. um, we won't even speculate what we might find. Yeah. Whatever, whatever data you get, it'll be useful. <laughs> it will be useful. Yeah, yeah. And 
there has been some surveys in the past for this animal, very um, very brief couple of couple of nights of spotlighting mm. and then and setting a few traps as in cage traps or something, which uh, is a really poor way of trying to survey a, a rare animal because um, you know Australian mammals have a five percent or so success rate even when they're common um, mm. of catching in a trap. Um, so no one's gone out there with camera traps and put them out there. So we've got, you know, in the order of 50 to 60 camera traps, mm-hmm. which may sound like a lot, but it's not. Um, but it's, it's a good start. And, um, and if we place those carefully, um, we, should, we should get whatever's out there, yeah. whatever that might be. Yeah, yeah, so we've got pretty decent information on where you think it should be in terms of types of habitat. Definitely. We have so target it's... sites. We're not just going out to the stony deserts and hoping to um, randomly place cameras and expect to find something. We've got very specific localities. Uh, and one of the great things about um, uh, doing this now, uh, which couldn't have been done even, say, 20 years ago, is that I've taken all these records from papers and, and the, the one that was um, specifically related to me and then... Um, taken that information of what people have said and gone to Google Earth and there's records like um, there's a, say a little town somewhere or a homestead that there was a sand hill to the west of the homestead and then, and then to the north of that was a clay pan and that's where they <laughs> saw the animal and you can go to Google Earth and you can, you can say there's the homestead remains often they're just you know um, ruins there it is I can see it on Google Earth I can see the sand hill I can see the clay pan to the north so mm. I, I'm not just it's not just well it's he- needle in a haystack stuff but, <laughs> but we know quite precisely in most cases yeah. where that needle might be it's very <laughs> exciting almost detective work yes really. yeah it is well um, you know one of the um, one of the sightings I'm trying to hone the, the, the the guy who related it to me couldn't remember exactly where it was, but it was beside a waterhole, and it, we have the rough location. We have maybe three or four candidate waterholes that it could be. And then he told me this story about how his um, the trailer that they were towing had a broken spring, and they went and cut some wood from a tree <laughs> and fashioned new springs out of it and tied it up with fencing wire, and that got them back to Adelaide. And I thought, that's a very interesting story. Thanks for telling me that. Um, but then he said to me, so, you know, no one goes out to these places. Um, you will find a tree, if you find a tree with, with several branches cut off next to the waterhole, <laughs> you know that you're at the right one. So that's the kind of detective work we're trying to do to, yeah. to sort of piece it all together. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're crowdfunding this mission. We are crowdfunding this mission. And um, it's the first time I've ever delved into crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, this, it's a sort of project that I thought might appeal to, the, to the, a broader audience. It's mm-hmm. an expedition uh, into the unknown, to the harsh Australian deserts. You know, it's not just any old desert. It's one of the driest, hottest deserts in Australia. Um, Sturt Stony Desert is like a... It's Gibber Plains. That's stony wow. plains that just stretch as far as the eye can see with sand hills, yep. you know, breaking up the, the, the Gibber. And, um, and, you know, barely a... a, a um, clump of vegetation across some of that and mm. these animals apparently nested wherever there was this, these little kind of clumps of vegetation um so you know it's got a lot of i think it's got a lot of appeal in that you know we're doing something adventurous and exciting that we don't know what the answer might mm. might be looking for something that we're not sure is there um but you know despite that there's that trepidation of what are people going to think about about this idea um 
the crowd have gotten behind it and mm. uh, and it's and it's tracking pretty well it's still in the in in the uh, last two weeks of, of trying to get to our target and it's a all or nothing nothing campaign so okay. if we get there we get the money but if we fall a few dollars short we don't so <laughs> <laughs> we won't let that happen but well, if people um, want to contribute to this yes they can jump online at experiment.com slash sandy desert uh stony desert so <laughs> experiment.com slash stony desert that's right that's right or even if they just go to the experiment.com website they can look at current projects and they should be able to find our project um, yeah. pretty quickly yeah and i mean these places like you said they're i don't want to use the word barren but there's nobody there so chances are the, there's there's a reason they've never been spotted well that's right and the accounts of people who have seen them um they are often stockmen that had lived and worked on those cattle stations. These cattle stations are vast. You know, you, mm. they're the um, some of them are the biggest cattle stations in Australia, um, or even perhaps in the world. And you know, stockmen who have maybe worked there for 10, 15, 20 years, mm. uh, and then one day they were driving cattle and they saw this little kangaroo shoot out from under a salt bush and tear off across the plain. Yeah. Um, never seen one before. Never seen one since. So yeah. yes, they um, they are. Um, there's not many people out there. Mm. Uh, there's not many people who know anything about the desert rat kangaroo and will be looking for it. Yeah. Uh, and um, and only those few people that that have been interviewed and you know remember a sighting. There's probably plenty others where oh, there's a little animal and that's interesting and that's that's the end of it for mm. them. So yeah, we we don't yeah, it's it's quite quite conceivable for this particular animal that it could be out there in a small remnant population that that hasn't been surveyed mm. and we don't know about it yeah. do you remember what got you intrigued about this animal in the first place well i did um my phd on a thing called the northern betong which was mm. another threatened species of um of uh potoroa the rat kangaroo type thing uh a relative of the of the desert rat kangaroo and um and so, of course, you know, like any PhD student, you, you do a literature search and you find out all about the species related to the one you're working on as well. And um, it, I think I got intrigued at that point because mm. it was this mysterious animal that had been found, lost, found, and then lost again. Um, and uh, the more I the more I researched it and delved into the the history behind these sightings and and um, and the you know the mystery around the animal it just it just became more and more mm. interesting and so i've been thinking about this for a good 15 years basically the whole time i've been here at une i've been thinking about getting out into the, de- the desert and finding <laughs> out whether or not this animal was there yeah. and um yeah when i got that phone call from someone who related an a, a observation to me i thought oh, i can't keep sitting here at UNE wondering <laughs> if it's out there <laughs> I better go and do something about it yeah yeah, yeah. I love those ideas that scientists just sit on for years and they can't shake them that's right <laughs> and exactly yes yeah, exactly it's well my wife's an artist and mm. and um and and if we look at go to a, an opening and and I often you know you're taken by a particular artwork and mm. and it's like oh gee I'd love to have that piece of and piece of art and um my wife says to me well go away and does it still play in your mind does it still kind of um are you still thinking about it later do you want yeah. to go back and look at it again that's when you really that's the kind of art you really want and it's a bit like that uh, uh, there's long periods where i forget about this animal but i'm always coming back to it always yeah. thinking 
um, uh, you know, is it is it there, and how would I go and and find out? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I've got a couple of those ideas I've been sitting on. I hope I don't have to sit on them for fifteen years. <laughs> well, yes, and fifteen years goes by by pretty quickly. Yeah. But then I thought uh, I don't want to wait another fifteen years, and <laughs> and, yeah. and crowdfunding is is making this possible. We're we're hearing a lot more about crowdfunding in science. Yeah, and this this experiment dot com website is specifically about. Oh, as it sounds, about funding mm-hmm. science. So it's all... They actually have a team of scientists that vet each proposal to make sure it is science. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's to keep the, the crypto nuts away. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then once your project's approved, then it, then it off it goes. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting way of, of funding a project. And small... You know, we have 60-odd backers now... Mm-hmm. Um, Everything from um, you know quite substantial sums down to um, uh, someone gave me ten dollars mm. with a uh, with a little message saying I wish it could be more hashtag student life you know so, <laughs> so, um, which makes those kinds of um, contributions uh, all the more meaningful really um, yeah. people uh, see this as something they want to they want to be involved in but they want to see it done you know mm. um, they can't do it themselves but they want to see it done and. It's it's astounding. It's I've been floored by the by the amount of support. Yeah. yeah. I mean, assuming you are successful in reaching your target and all that, do you think this is a, a funding strategy you'd use again in the future? How's, how's your first crowdfunding experience going? Well, um, it's been it's been a roller coaster ride. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't let them sit idly. You can't just post your crowdfunding uh, idea, mm. have the thing open and start running, and then walk away and get back to your normal life and forget about it because mm. you're you're you won't you won't get funded yeah so you have to promote it on social media you have to um uh, approach people you know you have to you go know? on podcasts you have to go on podcasts <laughs> and talk about it you have to um you have to talk you have to you have to actually send out emails to friends and say can you support me and that's yeah. a, i found that a, quite a hard thing to do and then to keep the momentum going because mm. social media is so fleeting you know someone sees something on their phone and they might say that's an interesting idea i'd like to fund that but they're not in a position to hit fund right there and then and then it's forgotten about mm. so you've got to keep keep the momentum going in yeah. new and interesting ways and i've, <laughs> I've found that to be a challenging interesting um rewarding but at times other times the campaign uh, grinds to a halt for a few days and mm. you're thinking is that it <laughs> has everyone who's in the world who would want to fund this has now funded it and that's as, that's all you're going to get so that's yeah. uh, ups and downs and it's uh, so would i do it again uh, um uh i don't know <laughs> well i mean when you think about it applying for grants is a lot of work Yes, it's a lot of work. Um, and that's right, and and actually putting the putting the proposal together wasn't that difficult. It's a quite a short thing because they don't. I guess they don't want people reading mm. great volumes of information, so it has to be quite quite you know uh, snappy online. Um, and then yes, yeah, so the real work comes in the promotion and mm. and keeping the interest going. So there's yeah. little lab notes you can post to sort of keep people interested in in. Uh, the project to let them know that you haven't forgotten about it, that you are really engaged in it, and you are yeah. going to follow through. And I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it's been been really interesting and fun for I sure. Guess, yeah, it's a question of whether you want to spend your time engaging with the public or yeah, doing useless box ticking exercises for a grant application. That's right. That's right. It beats beats admin. Uh, <laughs> um, but you raised an interesting point there about um, you know granting agencies versus crowdfunding. Um, 
with granting agencies, um, I'm, I, I, I'm sure you'd agree, you feel <laughs> quite removed from um, the agency. So you've you proposed a project and, and you, you know, truly believe you can do it and you mm-hmm. want to do it and you want to succeed. But if things don't quite work out, those kind of gremlins kind of ruin an experiment and you have to report back that, look, we tried that and it didn't work. Mm. You don't feel very, I don't know, maybe I'm getting myself into hot water here. You don't feel guilty. You feel dejected and let down. You know, you feel like, well, you've let yourself down and you've let your team down. You've let the funny agency down because you said you were going to do this and and things got in the way and you just didn't get it done. Mm. But... um, but, you know, I tried and, and, and didn't succeed with that element and, and I'll, I'll move on. But with crowdfunding, you feel um, that you've got all these individual people mm. that have given up their money to you to, <laughs> to do this. And the, the pressure is quite great yeah. <laughs> because we can't, we, can't, um, we can't let this fail, you know. We, not to say we... I'm not saying we, we have to find this animal because we don't know if we will. Mm. But we absolutely have to throw everything at it and mm. and um have all kind of c- contingencies built in so that we don't find ourselves with a broken down vehicle halfway to the study site and yeah. and, and we've spent our money and we haven't gotten anywhere right so <laughs> so it's um the pressure um of of that um feeling of of that generosity that people have have shown um has to be returned with you know hard work careful planning and, and make sure that we follow through mm. yeah you're going to be documenting this journey? Yes, we will. So um, uh, the opportunity exists once the, once the um, project closes and if it's funded, you can communicate directly with all of the backers in the project without um, telling the rest of the world necessarily mm-hmm. about this. You can share it with the world, but uh, I figure that the people who have backed me, the ones that should, you mm-hmm. know, they're part of the project now and they, they should reap the reward. So certainly we'll be keeping everyone updated about you know, once we hit the field and mm-hmm. photos of the study site, setting up cameras, but more importantly, once we start getting those photos in, you know, what are we finding and mm-hmm. sharing that with everyone as well. So it's a, it's a real community, um, uh, yeah. you know, a real community project. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be nice knowing that people care about what you do as opposed to just the academic community. Yeah, yeah, people, <laughs> people care about science and, yeah. and, and love, the, love the idea that, it's, it's, that, that we're, we're out there doing it. Mm. Um, and I find that too with, um, you know, something like as mundane as last night, we went spotlighting with, with my students and mm. we went up on the mountain at Mount Deval and we saw some greater gliders and some koalas and had a good night and it was a good learning experience for the, for the wildlife management students. But you put that kind of stuff on Twitter and then you find that, um, that people are retweeting it and excited about what you've done and alumni from university, from UNE are, are, um, are retweeting it and making comments and you think, mm. wow, I just did something fairly straightforward i thought but then you realize actually what we do as scientists is actually quite exciting Mm. um not a lot of people get to do it um Mm. and people love the idea that 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 kind of work is being done and that's that's what that's what this process is telling me that people really want to engage with science yeah Mm. and to uh, reassure your backers i guess you're you're a camera trapping whiz You've done a lot of this i've done a lot of camera trapping (laughs) um yes i have um i've got cameras running in the Himalayas in Bhutan at the moment. I've got cameras <laughs> running in caves in Mexico. I've got cameras running on our local field station out at Mount Deval. Um, I've done a lot of camera trapping and um, 
I'm pretty confident that that element of it won't fail um, yeah. because it can. You know, people if they don't set the cameras properly in the right locations in the right way, um, then they can easily return no results. And I I learned a long time ago that if you don't actually turn the camera on, for example, you just don't get any photographs. It just it won't happen. <laughs> that checklist of things to do. That's right. So Battery charged. Power button switched on. <laughs> and so these are essentially motion triggered yeah cameras so they're they're sort of technically heat in motion so okay. a warm body moving past the the sensor of the camera the camera is basically looking at the environment saying um detecting the sort of temperature of the environment in mm. in imagine a grid that it's looking at a grid and all those grid cells are all roughly the same temperature yeah. and then suddenly um a series of grid cells change temperature and that change kind of ripples across mm. the the sensor and at that point the camera says something has happened i better take a photograph and yeah. so they can sit there idly for you know weeks or months waiting for something to happen mm. uh, and then as soon as it does they, they take a photograph that's good so you're not going to be just getting pictures of leaves blowing in the wind no well you stuff. can get yeah. that uh, and plenty of people do and there's no doubt we'll get some of that as well uh, not too many leaves out there but um uh yes you can get say the shadow from the canopy of a waving tree mm. you know the shadow then sun shadow then sun and the camera thinks that's something to photograph but mm. i'd rather that happens than it not yeah. photographing something that it should um but you know these this is a harsh hot desert environment so you can set up the cameras to say don't don't come on during the day because you're not going to get anything mm. no self-respecting nocturnal mammal is going to be wandering <laughs> around at 50 50 degrees yeah. c so um yeah so we can we can improve our chances that way as well mm. and i feel like camera trapping was kind of a real game changer for mammal research because definitely I mean, before this was readily available it was having to actually get the physical animals you know in your hands that's and right tag so them, that sort of stuff it's it's been it's been really it's been a game changer as you say for wildlife ecology we are suddenly seeing animals that we just didn't see before mm. um or didn't see in, in in numbers or didn't understand their behaviors or their you know um their diurnal and nocturnal patterns of, of activity or you get all of that from camera trapping um and in the past, like like you say, you had to go out with spotlights and traps and things like that, and um, you just couldn't say whether your target animal was was really there or not. Mm. Now we, now you know, cameras don't detect everything, obviously, but it improves our chances greatly. Mm. And um, you really wouldn't run a biological survey, a wildlife survey anymore without without a good number of cameras on board. Mm. And you mentioned you have. Uh cameras in the Himalayas and things what what are you doing in the Himalayas <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, a UNE postdoc I'm working with um, right. on uh, on a project uh, involving large predators including tigers and snow leopards okay. um, so um, cameras are part of that that project yeah. to get a handle on both the predators and their prey mm-hmm. uh, in a range of different um, uh, river catchments in the Himalayas mm. Uh, but in the past, I've had um, uh, projects of my own as, uh, and alongside other students over there doing all kinds of work. We had a project on biological corridors, looking to see whether the corridors were that connect up the national parks were really doing their job. And mm-hmm. an easy way to do that is to put cameras in the landscape mm-hmm. and see what you get. Um, do you get all of the, the large predators like tiger and other you know um, charismatic mammals? And do you get their prey and... And you know, is the is the wild, is the corridor in the right place, mm. or do you just get a whole lot of um, people and their cattle walking up mm. and down a track? In which case, maybe 
we should be thinking about moving that corridor. So, uh, and in Bhutan, you can still do that because it's a mostly forested landscape. So mm. uh, my PhD student, um, Sangha Dorji, here at UNE, um, has the, through his PhD, is able to recommend that a corridor should be moved a bit to the left or a bit to the right wow. um, to, to capture the right suite of species. Yeah. So, Do you get to spend much time up there yourself? I've been to Bhutan a number of times, um, uh, setting cameras and also taking UNE students over mm-hmm. there on, um, on overseas study experiences through mm-hmm. um, uh, teaching them Himalayan ecology and biogeography, where we set cameras and do other uh, work as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really rewarding as well. So yeah, I've, I've been lucky enough to get to that amazing place a number of times. So yeah. you, you couldn't pick a much more different place than the stony desert? To no. <laughs> it's, it's flat. <laughs> it's got almost no vegetation. <laughs> um, but um, but uh, equally mysterious and, um, and, uh, and alluring for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember talking to, when I was doing work in the highlands of Malaysia, talking to people there and saying you know that you talk to people that live in the forest and there's this one old guy who said he's seen tigers three times in his whole life yeah but he sees their droppings all the time that's right that's right there's so much stuff out there that we just don't see absolutely um most Bhutanese have never seen a tiger and this includes people who have yeah had had their cattle grazing in the mountains Mm. drove you know migrating yak up to high altitudes they see the evidence of things like snow leopards and tigers, but they, they don't see them. But when we put out our camera traps, um, you can often get a tiger in a, in a couple of nights. So yeah. they're there. Uh, they're avoiding us, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got plenty of forest to, to, to get away in. So yeah. the nice thing about Bhutan is that it's mostly forested and the tigers don't have to bump up against people. Mm. And they, they keep their distance, which yeah. is good. <laughs> I'd probably say the same thing about you know, dingoes in Australia, right? Yeah. They're there. We just don't see them. We don't see them. That's right. Uh, you, can walk, you can walk through a national park for mm. days on end um, on, a, on a trek or something and, and, and not, not see any dingoes. But if you put cameras along that same trail that you're walking on, mm. you would probably get dingoes in the first night that you're yeah. there. So, yes, these animals, they're out there. We think we know a lot about about biodiversity and and we think we've you know we've conquered the planet and we know it all but Mm. we don't know it all we don't know how many species of of life there are on earth (laughs) we don't know where they occur Uh, we're constantly surprised by what we find so yeah it must be so exciting getting that glimpse into the you know the secret life of animals when we're not looking absolutely and that's you know people think of camera trapping maybe as just getting nice photos of animals you Mm. know i i see it as as good solid data of presence absence and and what time and what date an animal appeared and how that how animals share a space by you know foxes or koalas not being at a place when foxes are there and that kind of thing Mm. so we we learn a lot about um about it we learn good basic ecology from camera trapping um but you do get wonderful images as well Mm. and that's really good fun and people are doing things with sound as well now and they're putting out audio recorders and that's right Searching for particular bird calls at particular times or things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was a recent study that showed koalas were uh, more abundant and more widespread um, in northern New South Wales than we thought because they put out recorders for sounds and they got mm. the bellowing males and that, that told you that there was a koala there. So, well, yeah. I mean, how yeah. accessible is this technology now? Is it? 
It's pretty accessible. Super affordable. And well, look, you can buy a camera for it. You can what buy are... a camera trap at Aldi, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. But um, uh, but uh, there's different levels that you can come into that kind yeah. of thing. So some you know some people own camera traps as a you know as part of their kit that they go camping with, and they put a few cameras around and yeah. get some nice photos of animals. Um, to do it properly, obviously, you need lots of this gear. You just don't yeah. want you know a handful of them. Um, but uh, you know the price points come down, and the reason why the cameras are so accessible to wildlife ecologists is because the large hunting fraternity in the USA began to use these cameras as ways of you know seeing where the game was that they wanted to Mm. hunt Um, and that became very popular and so you could you know you could buy them at every hunting shop and you know (laughs) hardware store in in the USA and Canada Uh, and then wildlife biologists jumped onto that and went wow here's a mass-produced item that could make our research really yeah. good. And scientists are great at, at cherry-picking bits of other equipment that weren't designed <laughs> for them. Yeah. <laughs> I always wanted to set up a camera trap just in the backyard and see what the dog gets up to. I'm not looking. That's right. Or how many, or how many cats come into your yard when you're not around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to think about that. <laughs> All right. Well, we, sh- we should check in on this expedition mm. as it happens and and absolutely yeah, keep our fingers crossed yeah we'll keep you posted yeah yeah even if we don't find it are we keen to find out how many cats there are wandering that's around right. the stony desert what it, whatever we find will will be interesting i think yeah. because the amount of work we're putting into it the number of cameras the sites we're visiting uh i can't i can't begin I, my mind can't get around what we might find because who knows? <laughs> but um, but what what we find will be interesting. Yeah. 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 So if again, I'll I'll say the URL properly this time: <laughs> experiment.com/stonydesert, and you can jump up on there and, and donate to the project. And if people want to find out more about your work, Carl, uh, you're on Twitter. Yes. At Carl Verness, and you've just joined Instagram. Yes, I'm a newbie to Instagram, but um, I'm really enjoying it because of that visual appeal of... Um, of uh, I'm trying to sort of focus on camera trap imagery because yeah. you do get the odd fantastic photograph and that's what yeah, I'm trying yeah. to share on Instagram, yeah. Can, can I ask about your Instagram handle and where that comes from? Curious Betong, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I worked on Betongs and, um, <laughs> and I'm curious. Wrong. There you go. <laughs> All right, at Curious Betong on Instagram. <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Carl. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. And good luck with it. Thank you. (laughs) All right, thank you guys for listening too. If you want to hear more podcasts, check them out at inscituscience.com or we're at inscituscience on social media. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.